0: Good morning. You can turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. We'll pick up where we left off last week in chapter 2. And we are in verse 24. And as you're turning there this morning, I want to remind you that Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream and he asked all of his wise men, enchanters and astrologers and soothsayers, to not only tell him the interpretation of the dream, but the dream itself. The purpose was to prove whether or not they really, truly had supernatural ability. Of course, they could not do this, and Nebuchadnezzar became so furious that he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be put to death, which included Daniel and his three friends. So as the death sentence has gone out, and the commander Ariok is about to put all of these men in one place And have them executed, Daniel steps up and boldly requests time to be able to receive the revelation from God to not only interpret the dream but know what the dream was. And we saw last week as we came to a close in our study that God answered that prayer. Amen? God answers prayer. And that is really the theme of this chapter and we'll see that there are more answers to prayer to be discussed in this chapter but for now. I want us to take the time to actually look at the dream as it's recorded for us and to see that what God was doing was revealing to Nebuchadnezzar, keep that in mind, not to Daniel, but to Nebuchadnezzar, the future. It's amazing when you consider one of the most wonderful aspects of God's word. There are many that prove the truth of scripture, that prove the integrity of God's word beyond a shadow of a doubt. Some of the things might include its historical accuracy. You might also talk, though, about its prophetic ability. The ability to communicate in advance history. Now, we read history because it's already taken place, but to record history in advance, and so much of that happens in the book of Daniel, means that you would have already had to have seen what will happen before it happened and to be able to read from a book, essentially, that's written, proclaiming what will happen as if it's happened. So imagine reading or proclaiming history in advance. That's what prophecy is. It's very important that we understand, as we study prophecy, that we're not given prophecy in the Scriptures so that we can predict the future. Although many times, prophecy does predict the future... The purpose is so that when that prophecy is fulfilled, when the things that God has said come to pass, we will know that the Word of God is true. So many people get so caught up in trying to figure out how things are going to be. They will be what they will be. But the most important thing, and I think you really can become distracted by this, The most important thing, though, instead of being concerned with and over-infatuated with the future, is the present. To live in the present, to know that God can be trusted, His Word is true, and that He knows all things from the end to the beginning. He knows what will take place. And again, the theme of this book of Daniel, the sovereignty of God. That God is in control of all things should give you great comfort Because like the future of Babylon and other kingdoms was predicted in advance, your future can be predicted in advance as well. Your tomorrow, your next week, your next year are all within the mind and the heart of God. And he may reveal some of that to you, but even if he doesn't, when it comes to pass, you can be sure that God is in control. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you know all things. The beginning to the end, the end to the beginning, you know all things. You know every aspect of our life. Those things that have happened, those things that are happening, and those things that will happen are all within your heart and mind. And at times you choose to reveal these things that will happen to us through your word. And when you do and we see these things come to pass or we see prophecy fulfilled, it just increases our faith that we can trust you for those things that have yet to take place and for those promises that we have yet to experience in our lives. The promise of eternity, the promise of a perfect body, the promise of living throughout all eternity in your presence, worshiping you. The promise that all things are working together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes The promise that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it in Jesus Christ. All of these things are strengthened in our hearts and the truth of scripture comes to our minds when we know that your word predicts all things because you know all things, have seen all things, and you love us supremely. And you are sovereign over this universe that gives us such great comfort this morning. May that be the takeaway, may that be the application this morning, not just what happened or what will happen, but what's happening in our hearts and in our lives as you work by the power of your Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's been a while here at Calvary Chapel since I went through some of the prophetic books. I have taught through all of them, whether on Wednesdays or Sundays, I have taught through them. And it's always a danger, and it's something I pray about every time I'm about to teach a book like this, that we don't get off track. Because so many, it's so tempting, so many pastors, so many good teachers get caught up in trying to tell you in advance as if they're trying to scoop God to try to tell you before it happens what will happen. I can't do that. I won't even try. I can only share with you the things that God's word says so that you can take them in And when they happen, and if they've happened already, you'll be encouraged to know that you can trust God. We're here for our faith to be built up today. But in studying God's word, we will learn a few things about the past. We will learn a few things about the future, a few things. But hardly are we going to be able to sit here and tell you every single thing that will happen in the future. That's not even the goal. But let's jump back in now in verse 24 of chapter 2. I've already given you the introduction. And after Daniel has prayed, Daniel and his friends have prayed, God has revealed the dream and the interpretation to Daniel. And so we read in verse 24, Then Daniel went to Ariok, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Ariok took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. Let's just stop there for a minute. Daniel is assuring this man, Ariok, who who is going to kill all these men. He didn't need to execute the wise men of Babylon. I find it interesting. His first concern after having received this revelation from God was to save the lives of his friends and others who may it not even have been his friends. You see the heart of Daniel. He is concerned that no one be executed, even though most of the people that were about to be executed were occultists, pagans, idolaters, probably very wicked men, and also, let's not forget, phonies. I could have made a case for, you know what, go ahead and execute as many as you want, just spare these three guys, my friends not Daniel. He was confident that he could interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so he asked for the opportunity to do so. Now, I don't think that Nebuchadnezzar really ever expected anyone to be able to do this. I really think he made an unreasonable request with a purpose. I think he was just tired of paying these guys and realizing that they just made up stories. I think he kind of saw through what they were doing as con men. And he was Probably shocked that Daniel could tell his dream and interpret it. But now he's curious, I'm sure. Arioch was confident that Daniel could interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. How do I know that? He wouldn't have brought him in to see the king if he didn't think so. That would have looked bad. He vouched for him, if you will. And Nebuchadnezzar probably never expected that Daniel would return with the interpretation the next morning, but he did. And then we see that Daniel used this opportunity before nebuchadnezzar to boldly testify to the god of heaven for we read in verse 26 or actually where do we leave off i think uh 26 the king asked daniel also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what i saw in my dream and interpret it well daniel replied no wise man enchanter magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. Not because I have greater wisdom than other living men. But so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. You really can't just focus on the prophecies and the interpretations in the book of Daniel without stopping and admiring the character of Daniel. I think more than the prophecies, the most inspiring aspect of this book is to see that this man was highly esteemed by God. In fact, later on in the book, God tells him that through angels. He was highly regarded by God. Imagine God saying of you, you're highly esteemed. You're thought highly of by God. I can't even imagine God saying that about me, to be frank. I'm impressed by you, he might say, John. I, I'm impressed by you, Russ, Ed. I'm, in, I'm impressed by you. There's things about you and in your life that I highly esteem and think highly of. Imagine, imagine, you know, when we, when we think about impressing someone or someone being impressed by us, oftentimes it's, it's important to remember that whatever good thing God has done in our life should be impressive to others. But remember, it's a good thing that God has done in our lives. Amen? It's not us. We understand that. But imagine God looking at your life and saying, I like this guy. I like this girl. There's things about them that impress me. As I've said, it's hard to imagine God saying that about us. There's very little about us that we would bring to God and say, aren't you impressed, God? And yet Daniel was the kind of man that his character was so impressive that even God thought highly of him. I think of Job, who's put in that category by Ezekiel, right? Noah, Job, and Daniel, righteous men. And you think about Job, and, and, and God thought so highly of Job that he kind of bragged on him to Satan. And I'd be perfectly happy if God never did that with me. The way that the book of Job turned out, I'd prefer not to be bragged on, if if, if that's okay. But having said that, keep in mind, there are men and women in the scripture. A handful, really. Of course, Jesus, number one. But there are a handful of men and women in the scripture of which you could say wonderful things, and Daniel is one of them. So here's this man has this opportunity to really pump himself up, really jockey for position, really promote himself. And what does he do? He says, listen, this has nothing to do with me. This is all God. And you have to be impressed by that. Daniel used this opportunity to boldly testify to the God of heaven. He made it abundantly clear. No wise man had the ability to do what Nebuchadnezzar had asked. None. None of them. He declared that only God in heaven could reveal these mysteries. And he revealed to Nebuchadnezzar that his dream was, in fact, a prophetic revelation of things to come. Things that would happen in their future. And he explained that God had revealed to Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. And so this is kind of an exciting prelude to what we're about to look at. And he clarified again that God had revealed these mysteries to him. So the next time someone is impressed by a Bible study, you might want to say, to God be the glory. The next time someone is impressed by something you say or a text you, you share or an email you send to a brother or, or a scripture you share or something you share with someone at work and they say, well, boy, you, you're, you're so wise. The things you share show such wisdom. That is the perfect opportunity for a man or a woman of character to say, to God be all the glory. Amen. I experienced that a couple of months ago. When someone at the dojo asked me a question, and the implication was, well, you're, you're wise, you're, you're, you're a person that knows a lot, you're an intelligent person. And it gave me a perfect opportunity to share Scripture and to give all the glory to God. Because I know nothing, save what God has revealed to me. And you could say the same. He didn't claim to have greater wisdom than the other wise men of Babylon. If he had done that, everyone would have agreed. But he had been called by God to interpret the dream so that Nebuchadnezzar could understand it. You understand what he's saying? God wants to speak to you, Nebuchadnezzar. God wants to reveal something to you, O king. This is about God and you. This has nothing to do with me. This is God speaking to you. Now, when you're sharing your faith to others and with others, you you might want to remember that. This has nothing to do with you. You don't get a notch on your Bible every time you share the gospel and someone receives Christ. You're not a better Christian when someone responds to the gospel message. You're not a better Bible teacher when people come up to you afterwards and say, oh, what a wonderful study, pastor. You're just faithful. God is the revealer of mysteries. God has business with others, and he wants to use you To speak to them. And so we pick it up in verse 31. Let's read just verses 31 through 35, very self-explanatory, and then we'll go to the interpretation. Daniel goes ahead and reveals the dream. He says, you looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron. It's feet, partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces. At the same time, and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain, and filled the whole earth. Now, to be honest, if I were living in Daniel's day and I had received that dream, like Nebuchadnezzar or Daniel, who also received the dream, I certainly would not have had a clue as to what it meant. Why would God do that? Why would God give a revelation that is difficult to interpret? Well, let's think about the parables for a minute. Jesus taught in parables, and we're told why so that the truth of a parable could be revealed to those that were seeking truth, but hidden from those that were not. Why is God enigmatic? Why doesn't God just show up on the 11 o'clock news or the 6 o'clock news and, and just let everybody know the truth in, in an indisputable way? Why doesn't God just reveal himself so boldly and so clearly that even the most progressive, progressive, Liberal person who hates and despises God can't deny that he exists. See, you and I would like that, wouldn't you? I would like that. I would love that, actually. Even CNN would have to say something about it. MSNBC couldn't hide it. You'd have to acknowledge it. It happened. Imagine that in the media. You see, that won't happen because God is not interested in casting those pearls to swine. Did I just call them pigs? No, I just quoted scripture. So what I'm trying to say is that God will reveal truth to the heart that's open to it and hide it, even obscure it, from the heart that is wicked and rejects Christ. So when you share your faith with someone and they can't see the truth of it, you have to walk away, you have to do as Jesus said to his apostles, you have to sort of brush the sand off your sandals, the dirt off your shoes, and walk away and say, I cannot reveal truth to the heart of someone that denies it. Perhaps you felt like a failure because your children don't want to know the truth or refuse to see it. Maybe you've looked at your boss or your person or person that you're working with and, and you've said, you know, I've shared the gospel, I've lived the gospel, I've done everything I can, and yet this person just can't see it. I have felt like that at times. It is not our job. It is God's job. It is the Holy Spirit that reveals truth to the heart that's open to it. Amen? But we need to just share the truth. God had business with Nebuchadnezzar. Most of the rest of this book is about God's business with Nebuchadnezzar, at least the first half of this book. So you have to understand, you need to acknowledge that God reveals truth to the heart, not you. You simply convey the message. And that's what Daniel had done. Without getting into the the, the dream just yet, I, I just want to point out this was a confusing vision. It required interpretation, and I can see that God wanted Daniel to interpret it. So He orchestrated the circumstances. He spoke to Nebuchadnezzar, but not clearly, not so clearly that he didn't need help. And the help came from a man who would influence Nebuchadnezzar's life throughout the rest of his life and ultimately bring him to faith. Now God did that work through Daniel. But this is the beginning, maybe not even the very beginning, but certainly the beginning of a work of God's Spirit. And Daniel is at the center of it, and he's trusting that God will do the work. Do you trust that God will do the work? Say amen. God does the work. Well, the interpretation, I'm so grateful for this, because I would be lost if I had to interpret it myself. Any of us would be. In verse 36... And uh, what we'll do is we'll read, actually, the whole interpretation, and then we'll come back over it. In verse 36, Daniel goes on to say, This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Now, when he says we, I have to assume that maybe his friends were with him. But at this point, it's Daniel who's doing all the interpreting. Whether the dream and its interpretation were revealed to his three friends or not, I don't know. I just know that Daniel is the one that God has chosen to speak. He said, now we will interpret it for the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. And in your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. And wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. And finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. And just as you saw that the feet and the toes are partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it. Even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out from a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. This dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. That's a lot to think about, isn't it? I want you to imagine now you're Nebuchadnezzar. This interpretation and this dream was for him. It's really not for us. I mean, we can glean from it. We can appreciate it. It was written so that we can learn from it. But this is a message from God to a pagan king. Does God speak to pagans? Pagan kings, wicked men, wicked women? Oh, you bet. He does, he has, and he always will. So there's hope for the White House. I'm still praying. God speaks to wickedness in high places. And he'll do whatever's necessary to communicate both his love and his will, even to those that reject it. Amen? Amen. And imagine if Daniel had a, sort of copped an attitude about it. He said, well, I'm not going to share this interpretation. I want this guy to die and go to hell. I don't want anything good happening to this guy. I, I want terrible things to happen to this man. I was dragged from my family, from my home. Brought to a place I didn't want to be, a place of idolatry. I'm essentially in prison. My life is over. This isn't the life I plan. I'm bitter. I have PTSD. I want justice. I'm a victim. What if that was Daniel's heart? Of course, it isn't. But what if it was? Would Daniel have been able to be used by God? You see, our victim culture prevents people from being used. It also prevents people from getting out of their own way. You're a victim. We're all victims of sin. Sin has wreaked havoc in my life, your life, our lives. Let's face it. Let's be honest. Other people's sin has damaged us. Our own sin has damaged us. So what? Oh, how insensitive. God is love. You're supposed to be sympathetic. I am sympathetic. But get over it. You have to get to a place where you realize we're all damaged goods. Whether you're in recovery, or you grew up in a horrible home, or no home at all. In Daniel's case, as a young man, he was traumatized. And yet here's a man that God says, you're greatly esteemed. You simply have no excuse. I have no excuse. We have no excuse for not serving God. Don't tell me things have just been too tough. Oh, pastor, you don't understand. I do understand. We've all been traumatized. But this man, when he speaks to Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't sound like he's, he's speaking to someone who's a pagan idolater. In fact, it sounds to me like he really wants Nebuchadnezzar to hear the truth and receive it. He doesn't say anything to him that is flattering, but at the same time, he's encouraging. Think about that. And, and I want you to think of others like Nehemiah and Joseph, who God used in high places in government to reach men and women. Or Esther, who found herself in the Persian palace. These opportunities, when we find ourselves in these places, you have to understand your love for the pagan, your love for the idolatry or the wicked person is what God will use to reach them with the truth. If you don't love them, just go home and don't bother. Because you're not going to do any good In fact, you'll probably do a lot of harm. How many times have we heard a gospel presentation without love? As if you could do that. It sounds something like this. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He rose again on the third day. And if you don't believe it, you're going to hell. Where's the love in that? I'm not saying that's not true. I'm just saying, where is the love? Like a song, right? Where's the love? You know, I I feel so strongly about this that i don't even care about the prophecy what i care about is that daniel cared about nebuchadnezzar it's obvious not just in this chapter but in the following chapters as well who do you care about i know you care about your family i know you care about your loved ones you care about those nebuchadnezzars in your life that aren't even close to salvation but need to hear the truth Well, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of his dream. And it's fascinating because there's simply no way that that he could have predicted this. There's simply no way. Uh, Critics of the Bible almost unanimously come to this conclusion. The book was written after like 167 BC because there's no way this book could have recorded history in advance with such precision if it was written before the events actually took place. One little problem with that very big problem with that the septuagint writers or translators of the bible translated daniel in at least 300 bc so what are you going to say well all the stuff that if you say that it was written that late and it wasn't it was written much earlier but if you say it was written that late you can make a case for some of the things being written afterward but not all of them so so okay so he's only 50 percent accurate here's the truth he wrote all of this way before it happened He wrote it exactly when the Bible says he wrote it, at this time in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is told he's the head of gold. This places us probably about 597 BC, but Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. He was the king of kings to whom God had given dominion, power, and might, and glory, and God had given him authority as the ruler over mankind, at least the area of the Babylonian Empire, which was vast. It extended over the known world at that time. He also had dominion over the beasts of the field, the birds of the air. That is to say, he was completely in control of his empire. He didn't share power. He had it all. This was certainly true of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. And when we talk about prophecy, you'll hear a term called the times of the Gentiles. This is the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. And they continue right up until the Lord's return. It basically means that God is working among the Gentiles, but he's still working through the lives of his people, Israel. Before this, the Gentiles were sort of an afterthought. They were just sort of mentioned, but now the Gentiles are at the center of God's work and will in the world. And we're still in that time period. It's not to say God isn't working in Israel. It's just that the Gentiles and the Gentile world is at the center of God's plan for now, for now. Well, there's a kingdom that was predicted. Now, it wasn't hard to interpret. Well, maybe it was. But to interpret the first part of this vision, the head of gold, well, not so difficult because Babylon already existed. But here's where it becomes impossible, apart from God's divine revelation. He goes on to say a kingdom that's inferior to Babylon is represented by the chest and the arms of silver. And this, of course, we know because of history, represents Medo-Persia the Medo-Persian Empire. We'll talk more about this empire as we go through the book of Daniel. It emerged at around 539 BC when they conquered Babylon. That hasn't happened yet. That's still future at the time that Nebuchadnezzar received this dream. And this was, of course, true of Medo-Persia. And Daniel actually lived to see this come to pass. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar did not, but Daniel did. He was still alive in 539 B.C. We'll see that when we get to chapter 5. He was there when Persia conquered Babylon. But he couldn't have known this, apart from God's revelation. And then we're told that a kingdom will rule over the whole earth. And that kingdom is represented by the belly and the thighs of bronze. Now, this represents Greece, history tells us. It represents Greece, which emerged around 332 B.C. as an empire. It had been around longer than that. But around this time, the Greek empire emerged. And what we do know is that everything that Daniel says here and in other portions of Scripture in the book of Daniel is certainly true of Greece. It's true that Alexander the Great was its conquering founder. And we'll talk more about Alexander the Great in chapter 8. But then he tells more about another kingdom. And really, the other kingdoms are mentioned, Medo-Persia and Greece, which emerged on the world scene, history tells us, when they did. They're talked about here, but just briefly, the real issue, the real purpose of this vision is to reveal the fourth kingdom. And the fourth kingdom has two phases. You see, that kingdom, which will rule over the whole earth, is Greece. But the kingdom that's as strong as iron and Represented by the legs of iron is the Roman Empire, which didn't emerge on the scene until about 65 to 63 B.C. Now keep in mind, that's about 500 years after Daniel is writing this book. How do you predict 500 years in the future? You don't. Only God can reveal these mysteries. I can't even tell you what I'm going to have for lunch this afternoon, and I'm in control of that. Sometimes I know, sometimes I don't. But 500 years from now, I can surely never predict or reveal to you what will happen in the world. If the Lord should tarry, I, don't, I, I dread, I shudder, to think what the world would be like if he didn't return for the next 500 years. I personally don't think we would make it that far. But if we did, what would the world be like? How could you begin to predict an empire like the Roman Empire, which dominated history, at least European history, For centuries. Well, all that Daniel said is certainly true of Rome. And Daniel's description in verse 40 of the smashing and the crushing was certainly true of all of Rome's conquests. And the beauty of this is that we have secular history to testify not only to the kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greece, but even more history written about the Roman Empire. So how do you dispute that? Well, you have to come up with some kind of an idea that says that this book was a forgery. How do you do that when it was documented as having been translated into Greece at least 300 years before Christ? You you can make an argument. It's not a good one, but you can make an argument that that's when it was written. But then how do you explain the prediction of the Roman Empire, which took place 250 years later? You can't. So why do I point these things out? Because you and I, we need to understand God's word is true. Say amen. And that's what prophecy tells us more than anything else. I could skip over the revelation here and the prediction of it, and it would still be the value of this chapter would be in knowing that you could trust God and his word. But we won't. We'll look at it. This Roman Empire or this Roman kingdom described as a fourth kingdom is then described as as a divided kingdom. And it's interesting because when the Roman Empire emerged, it was not a divided kingdom. And remember, it's described as the legs of iron. Ultimately, history reveals that it divided in half. You had the Byzantine Empire, and then you had the Roman Empire proper in Rome. And during those centuries, while the empire was divided, it's interesting that the legs are divided. Kind of shows you a picture of a kingdom that was still very strong, but divided into two halves. But as time went on in the Roman Empire, it became more and more brittle that is, more and more unstable, until ultimately the Roman Empire fell. But the divided kingdom is the feet and toes of iron and clay. Now, you've probably heard that saying, the idol has feet of clay. And of course, that comes from the book of Daniel. It's as if to say, well, you know, this person who thinks they're so strong has feet of clay, so all you have to do is kick them into ankles and they, they, they fall. In other words, they're not who they say they are. We got that saying from Daniel chapter two. But this divided kingdom is not so much the Roman Empire as we know it, but a future version of the Roman Empire. You see, one of the things we deduce as we study the scriptures in both Daniel, Book of Revelation, other places, is that there will come a point where Rome will fall, but it will reemerge in the last days. I'm here to tell you it's already happened. That much has already happened, and we'll talk a little bit about that. We're told that this kingdom, this divided Roman Empire, will have some of the strength of iron like the previous kingdom. It will be partly strong and partly brittle. That is to say, it will have elements of strength like the Roman Empire of old, but it will also be brittle and fragile in other ways. Its people, we're told here in verses 41 through 43, will be a mixture of different peoples. It won't remain united. And we know from this scripture and from the book of Revelation that this kingdom will be divided into ten divisions. Now, this is certainly true in many ways. Everything I've said and everything that Daniel revealed is certainly true of what we call today the European Union. It was first the common market. Then it grew to more of a real, true union. And then they adopted their own currency. Now, members have come and go. go. I mean, Brexit just took place a number of years ago. And Britain actually left the European Union. Now, right now, it does not have 10 divisions as we know them. So it's fair to say that whatever this Roman Empire will ultimately become, it's not there yet. But I think we see the stages being set. We see that whatever is going to emerge in the last days of the remnants of the Roman Empire Certainly, it's hard to imagine it not coming from or being founded upon the European Union. For years, people said the United Nations. But I think everyone would agree that there's nothing strong about the United Nations. I mean, what a waste of time that organization has become. And money. And everyone knows it. And still, we continue to fund it. How do you you have an organization that's supposed to maintain peace in the world and Russia is a permanent member of the Security Council? It doesn't make any sense. That, that organization, my opinion, my humble opinion, should be dissolved. doesn't do anything except take money. But the European Union is a much different organization. It's a union of states, European states, and the, the idea is we don't want to go back to having world wars where, where we have factions like we're experiencing or seeing in our world today in Eastern Europe. We don't want to have that anymore. So these countries come together and they create a union, but it's a brittle union because it can fracture very quickly. Brexit is a perfect example of why. So this European Union, let's call it that, which will emerge in the last days, and we certainly are in the last days, but we haven't seen the fulfillment of this prophecy yet, things to look for, ten divisions. That would be one of the first things I would look for. Ten clear divisions. People try to make it, but no. When you look at the European Union flag, the Euro flag, it has a number of stars, one star for each Union state, but it's not ten. At one point it was, and everybody freaked out. Books were written, pastors were preaching messages, they had to erase and delete. We're not there yet. I don't know when, if, or if in my lifetime we'll see it, but I know we're not there yet. But this... European Union, this revived Roman Empire, is strong, like Rome's former imperialistic government, but it's partly strong, or will be partly strong and partly brittle, as a social democracy, and that's kind of exactly what it is. Notice it's people are a mixture of different peoples with an economic union, and that's exactly what we see. But it has not remained united, and it currently is not divided into ten divisions, so that may not be the ultimate fulfillment of this scripture. It's just a likely fulfillment, and we're not there yet. Well, then we talk about a kingdom. This isn't really that difficult for us as Christians to interpret, because Daniel interprets it for us, and it lines up with all of the scripture as it relates to the Lord's return. This is a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It's the rock that struck the statue. This is Christ's future kingdom, his millennial kingdom. God will set up his own earthly kingdom in the time of the previous kingdoms, And that is still happening, but there has been this gap in the prophecies that were fulfilled in the past, and then for a long time, specifically and especially after Christ's death and resurrection, we've been in kind of like a holding pattern. Some people call it a time of grace. It's a gap between the fulfillment of prophecies in the Old Testament and the future fulfillment of prophecies in the Old Testament. time of grace. Not that God isn't working, but these prophecies have sort of hit the pause button. And that's where we're at right now. And that's why it becomes difficult to understand some of these, because they're almost fulfilled, but there's still like a portion of the fulfillment that needs yet to be fulfilled, and we're waiting on that. It's as if, to put it this way, all of the prophecies were being fulfilled right up until the point where Christ was rejected. And we'll see this in Daniel 9. As soon as he was rejected, it's as if God just stopped the clock. You know what a chess clock is? You hit it and the clock stops, the timer stops. It's kind of where we're at, waiting for the next move. But this we are told, God will set up his own earthly kingdom. It will never be conquered or left to another people. It will crush all the other kingdoms and bring them to an end. It will endure forever. And this marks the end of the time of the Gentiles, as I've already mentioned. This rock was cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. And it stresses that twice. Why? So that we'll know that Christ is begotten of God, not made. Amen? Speaks of his divinity, the incarnate Son of God. But God will surely destroy all of the world powers and establish his millennial kingdom on earth. Just not yet. But I have to say with John, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen? So what are we looking for? Well, let's stop and forget what are we looking for. Why are we looking for? Why are we looking for? Why are we looking for Christ to come again? To set up his kingdom. How it happens and all of the things that take place leading up to that are incidental to me. The blessed hope is of his appearing. Not Satan's appearing. The blessed hope isn't in predicting the troubles that will come upon the earth before Christ comes. The blessed hope is predicting Christ's coming. Preaching the Lord's death until he comes. That needs to be your singular focus. That more than anything should be our focus. And it's interesting, because it's never hard to interpret that. Scripture is not enigmatic about Christ's return. I mean, there are people who like to confuse the issue of what will happen before he returns. But all schools of theology that are anywhere near orthodox will agree that Christ is coming again. Amen? Amen? Christ has died, Christ has risen. Christ will come again. We all acknowledge that, and yet we get so caught up in the details leading up to it that we miss the main point. Do you realize that? We miss the tree for the forest. We don't understand that that is needs to be. That needs to be our focus. And so yes, it's very interesting. In fact, it's fascinating. But if you spend all your time trying to figure out what's going to happen leading up to Christ's return and none preparing your heart for his return, you miss the boat. You missed it. Well, that's very interesting. Fascinating to study, but look what happens next. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate, that is, on his face, before Daniel and paid him honor in order that an offering and incense be presented to him, the king said to Daniel, surely your God is a God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Look at how that impacted and affected Nebuchadnezzar. He's more impacted by the truth that God revealed truth to him than the truth itself. You know what I said? He's more impacted by the fact that God revealed truth to him than the truth itself. That God would reveal truth to me, Nebuchadnezzar might say. He fell down on his face. He honored Daniel. He presented him with an offering with incense. That is, I'm not going to say he worshipped him, but he did all that he could to honor him. He acknowledged that Daniel's God, that is Jehovah God, is a God of gods. Now we know there are no other gods, but Nebuchadnezzar didn't understand that yet. So he calls him a God of gods, a Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. And in his mind, that's a good description. He's beginning to be affected by God's truth. He has a very limited understanding of the God of heaven, but he hadn't decided to serve him just yet. We'll see when we get to chapter 4. That changes. It took a breaking for that man to give his heart to God. You know that Nebuchadnezzar actually wrote Daniel chapter 4? It's just inserted, copy and paste, by Daniel. Well, Nebuchadnezzar then, we see, appointed Daniel to a high position. Look what it says in verses 48 and 49. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. As we close, I want you to recognize... That while Nebuchadnezzar lavished many gifts and made him the ruler over the entire province of Babylon, there was a point, there was a purpose in God doing this, allowing this. Nebuchadnezzar placed him in charge of all the wise men of Babylon, called him the Rabmag, the chief of the Magi, which come up later on in the New Testament, when the wise men or Magi come to Israel to see the Christ, the child that was born Messiah. Where do you think they got that intel from? The Rob Mag himself, the chief of the Magi. Well, Nebuchadnezzar appointed Daniel's friends as administrators over the province of Babylon at his request, of course. And Daniel remained at royal court as a chief administrator. Now, we, we started the, this chapter talking about an answer to prayer. It's a the theme of this chapter. And yet so many people focus on the prophecy. But you know something? God's purpose in all of their trials was to promote these four men to these positions of power within Babylon. Their exile to Babylon brought them to the place that God had called them to be. Not a pleasant experience. In fact, their death sentence gave them an opportunity to pray to God and for him to answer them. The revelation of the dream and its interpretation brought Daniel to the position that God had called him to. This was God's doing. And so the Jewish people now had a powerful advocate to care for and protect them during their captivity. Brothers and sisters, that was the real answer to prayer. God is always working on behalf of his people. Say amen. Amen. Lord, heavenly Father, we thank you because we can trust you with our lives knowing that you know the future, you know our past, you're working in our present, and we need not doubt in any way, shape, or form that you are sovereign. But Lord, help us to see that you have a purpose in our trials. Help us to see that in the tribulations and difficulties of our life, even the trauma, the hurt, the pain that you desire to work. And not just on our behalf, but to bless your people and to reach pagans, idolaters, and wicked men and women with the truth. Help us to get our eyes off of ourselves. To put them on you that we might feel empowered and encouraged to share the truth that you did come and die on the cross for our sins. That Jesus rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, where he ever lives to make intercession on our behalf. And that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And as we acknowledge that truth and claim and proclaim Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we're forgiven and saved, forgiven of our sins, saved from a, an eternity apart from you, and judgment for our sins. It's what it means to be saved, and Lord, I pray for every heart here that you would have acknowledged in their hearts that the word of God is true. There's no way that it couldn't be true, given the predictions given in Daniel, and the accuracy with which they were fulfilled. So we ask, Lord, that you touch every heart. We think of all those in our lives who are like Nebuchadnezzar, who need a revelation of your divine truth, that they might give their hearts to you. And we pray that they would. Through your work, by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.